Hi, I'm Phoebe Lovett, and this is Deep Read, a podcast where I have in-depth conversations with big thinkers about big ideas. Every episode of the series is accompanied by a further reading list, which you can access at public-library.online. Welcome to the first ever episode of Deep Read. My first ever guest is Danielle Pender. Danielle is the founder of Riposte, a magazine that profiles bold and fascinating women who challenge power structures and stereotypes. She's also the author of Watching Women and Girls, a new collection of short stories which came out in the UK last week and which explores the way that women are looked at, the way that we look at each other and the ways that we look at ourselves. I've always appreciated Danielle's perspective on modern womanhood, so I wanted to speak to her about that as well as a few other things. There is a little bit of background noise at the start of the episode, which I promise doesn't continue throughout. But thank you so much for sticking with me while I figure out this audio recording thing. And I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Thank you so much, Danielle, for agreeing to speak with me today. My pleasure. Yeah, it's really nice to be able to chat to you in this context, having obviously like had mostly work related chats before about Riposte and your various infinite projects. I finished reading your book last night and it's brilliant. It's brilliant. I like it's, it was really engrossing and I got even more into it as it progressed. I felt like I was sort of like immersed in all these different women's lives. And it was so interesting to think about your process when you were writing it. But instead of jumping straight in there, I just wanted to sort of rewind a little bit because I'm sure anyone who's going to listen to this will be familiar with Riposte. But for anyone who isn't, can you just tell me a little bit about what Riposte is? Yeah, so I started it in 2013. And around that time, there was like very little decent women's media. And I think, you know, like there was Gentlewoman and there was a few bits, but not very much like, you know, the mainstream titles were still very... They were still very white, skinny, like elitist, had that sort of fake aspirational tone to them. So we wanted to do something that we wanted to read and started Repost, which is we started by calling it a smart woman's magazine, which after a while it was like, "Mm, that didn't quite sit right because it sort of felt like we were taking ourselves a bit too seriously. But the, the idea was that Repost was like this antidote and it covered a lot of different topics that I felt that my friends and I were interested in, but just weren't reflected. So like business, politics, music, design. It wasn't just the normal sort of fashion, beauty, celebrity areas. And it started off as a print magazine. And we're now in the 13th, well, the 14th issue. And yeah, it's kind of, it's grown and changed. And over the pandemic, we took a really big hit because the way that we make money is with brands through partnerships and events and everything stopped. So we kind of had to reevaluate and started doing these online editions. So each month we do a different theme and we have memberships and that's, and that's where the sort of content goes to our uh, subscribers. And it's, it's worked well. We still, I still really believe in like the print product because I feel like that's like an elevated and a really succinct way of like accessing the brand and it, sums up everything that we stand for and I just like we saw each other at off print last week and I think like print experience is just so much richer than digital than a digital experience 
so yeah we're still sort of dedicated to print and hopefully we'll have the next issue out in September fab and just to go back a little bit further than that I actually don't really know what your background was in before starting Repost but like can you just tell me a little bit about sort of you know where you grow, grew up and and what you were like interested in growing up and specifically because obviously broadly I wanted to talk to you today about sort of womanhood because you've spent so much of your career documenting and observing what it means to be a woman today and obviously as that has evolved throughout your time making the magazine like what what did that mean to you know when you were a young girl woman what what did womanhood mean to you how did you envision your life working out and like who were the women you were looking to at that time for sort of like guidance or inspiration it was I grew up in just outside of Newcastle in the northeast so in the 90s so at that time there was and in, in particular in Newcastle and like sort of in the outside areas like there wasn't a lot so I really felt like I grew up in this kind of small town full of Geordies and Geordie culture is like football drinking I mean it's not now but it, it very much felt like that it felt like a really small world and mm. The school that I went to was really rough. Like, it was kids used to kick the shit out of each other all the time. And, you know, it was, like, underfunded. So it was, yeah, it wasn't a great place. But I felt like I knew that there was more. I felt like there was more. And then my form tutor, she she one day told me that this woman, Mandy Norwood, had gone to our school. And she was, at the time, the editor of Cosmopolitan. Okay. And I remember it was like this real light bulb moment because I was like, ah, she came from here and she went on to do, and like at the time Cosmopolitan was like, that was one of the magazines that I could see in the local news agents. And it was, you know, it was a main, a big deal. So that really like made us think, or just made us sort of, it didn't make me realize that that was possible, but it just sparked something. Mm. And then... I think, yeah, it was kind of, as I grew up as a teenager, I became, I think the beauty of like pre-internet teenage experience was that when you were into stuff, you were like properly into it and you had to like really suss it out and you found your people and it felt like very special. So I was very into music and like magazines Mm. and collected lots of like records, ephemera, that kind of stuff flyers and I think that yeah I've always been into magazines and I used to like draw fake like Vogue covers and and so I suppose but I never really saw that as like an as an option it Mm. was just like that was a thing that I liked and then I think I just thought like I would get a job in Newcastle which I then did I went I went traveling for a bit and then I went to uni and did history of modern art, film and design. And then that really like, I got a job, a part-time job in the local like, independent cinema, the Tyne, Tyneside Cinema, which is actually mentioned in the book. Right, right, right. And and that, that was the place that really like blew my mind because it used to have all of these international film festivals and like these weird people work there and they they did these weird art projects like this Canadian guy worked there and he he did this project where he just read Moby Dick in like this the basement of this local art gallery and just read the whole book over like a week regardless of people whether people went to see him or not and like 
that's I mean it's not I don't think that's a really revolutionary idea but it just made us think like wow people just do this like random stuff because they Mm -hmm. want to do it and it really made us think outside of like the people that I'd grown up with who were just I mean lovely it's a very tight-knit community but it just was kind of like it felt really small and then my world felt like it opened up more working at cinema and going to uni and watching like a taste of cherry this iranian film which i really loved was one of like mm. the first films that i was like yeah it's just a really beautiful film and so i think all of these things then broadened my horizons and then i stay i've worked at the time side kind of full-time for a couple of years and i had friends who had moved to london mm. so i used to come and see them all the time and go to like fabric and i'm sure it shouldn't get really messy and then i think i just got to the point where i was like I wanted, I was coming down like really regularly, like once a month, twice a month to go out. And then I was like, it just felt like this was where things were happening. And it felt like my life was a bit stagnant in Newcastle. And it was like, I need to be, I wanted to be where the action was. I wanted Mm. to escape, I think. So had you finished your studies by then or did you come to London to study? Yeah, I'd finished and I was working on, at the time, like it was, I guess it was like labour boom years because they were investing really heavily in like cultural projects so there was this yeah. thing called culture 10 across the northeast and it was like i mean like thousands thousands and thousands of pounds got spent which was amazing but it was also like it was on these sort of big festivals and on these big art projects so i kind of worked in a lot of different festivals which was great but then i guess none of that money got put into grassroots organizations in the northeast which was one of the downsides but yeah i had a like good experience of of working with people outside the northeast and then just was like I need to get out of here and mm. slept with slept with too many people in the northeast <laughs> I needed to move need a fresh pool <laughs> yeah. basically it's interesting when you talk about like what you know I think magazines in the 90s I was a kid in the 90s but my mum worked on a magazine and so I had like a very I was reading magazines probably above my age range well before I should have been and obviously very you know very much exposed to magazine culture my mum actually worked at J17 I don't know if that's one the dream the jury I mean were you in any of the photo diaries no, oh, no, I wasn't. I mean, I was I was really a kid when my mum was working at J17, like, because I was born in the late 80s. But I, again, obviously for me, it did have a disproportionate effect just by personal circumstance. But I do think, when I think about J17, I don't know if that was one of the magazines you used to read when you were young, but like, th- those young women's magazines in the 90s were actually really cool and progressive. And I feel like there were a lot of super cool like feminist icons in pop culture in the 90s amazing style like you know it was actually for me it was so formative to be exposed to that kind of imagery and like and then I feel like it kind of died out and everything became very palatable and sanitized yeah 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 I think like the 90s was amazing for those icons and even if they weren't I mean like salt and pepper and like the riot girl movement and like Courtney Love and just they, it felt and even I suppose some of the Britpop women they weren't yeah yeah they were just very inspiring and they were kind of doing their own thing in what I can only imagine was a very sexist system mm. but it didn't yeah and then I think like maybe the early noughties things just got 
bit worse and it was like kind of felt like it died off there yeah yeah just that like kind of uh was just like a very of course you know obviously as you say we have to acknowledge that those women were probably operating in extremely sexist working conditions but just in terms of like personal style and culture you know and art and and opinions and politics it, it kind of just felt like very rough and ready and kind of I don't know I just think of the the girls I used to read about in Joe 17 and I can like very clearly visualize their looks and Mm. it was actually kind of like a predecessor to what has come now with women's media where I do think it's become much more expansive and and inclusive again but with this kind of subtext of it being to sell shit which is yeah. like you you touch on that in one of the short stories the the girl who works in the advertising agency and sort of like her moment of a sort of realization that so much of of this like supposed financial support for young individual people is really just basically being used to hawk shit for very wealthy corporations yeah i just feel like the last maybe 5 years have I mean, it's been going on for time, like, you know, brands co-opting things and brands making money off the back of interest and movements. But I don't know, it feels like it's got a lot worse. And I think that rise of, like, the individual, like, activist influencer, it's because you, because the brands can sort of channel them, contact them through Instagram, they're mm. a lot more, it's a lot easier to sort of take advantage of and that sort of piggybacking any kind of cause just for clout and flick flacking around just you know whoever whatever the cause that their customers or audience are into it's like moving target all the time and it's I don't know it's just so messy and murky and I think we're heading into I mean you've already seen it like activists who perhaps who had you know good reasons and wanted to do good and then they've been co-opted by brands and it's kind of diluted messages and people have have now got to the point where I mean I don't I used to share quite a lot of political stuff on Instagram and now I'm like what's the fucking point like it just feels like it's really counteractive and the good messages and the good work that could have been shared through social media or the the impact has just been so diluted because it's been watered down by brand association and just yeah. people, I don't know. It's just really it's messy. A, it's a very, it's a very confusing thing to navigate, especially if you're a woman operating within media and or creative industries, because obviously, you know, this kind of all intersects with you're at it from every perspective. Like you're writing about it in these fictional accounts of of women, and particularly through this lens of the gays, and then obviously you're dealing with it as a magazine founder who presumably has to like negotiate with brands all the time for you know, financial support. And then also just like as a woman in media yourself with like somewhat of a public profile, and I'm sure you'll have to do a lot of press for the book and whatnot. And I think like, it's such a confusing thing to navigate. I'm sure you've read Gia Tolentino's written a lot about this and sort of, obviously this is something that affects men as well, but like the encouragement for women to commodify ourselves or not even the encouragement, but like often the sort of almost complete necessity Mm. to present this like palatable brand for the for sheer like economic reasons you know like what's sellable about me I feel like that's something that really in my mind intersects with with those stories that you're telling in your book and again the stories that um you share and repost like 
it's even it's in a way it's more complicated than ever to be a woman because you're you've got this like or a woman in our industry is this financial imperative to like sell yourself completely even uh so with the promotion of this book the plan is that you write a few features which are loosely related to the themes in whatever book that you're promoting yeah and then at the end or somehow you weave in and i have a book out but so i came up with a load of feature ideas of stuff that would be comfortable writing about but every time it was like what's the personal angle on this like what can you say about your family? What can you say about your, like, sexuality? What can you say about your experience of class? In And it's like, I get it. People want to write, people want access, and people want to make it relatable and personable. But it's that thing you were saying, that, like, selling part of your life and putting so much of your life on display to sell something. And it's just really, it's really uncomfortable. Mm. You know, there's like a story about in the book about a, a dead dad, and my dad died when I was 24. But then, so then there's like the expectation oh, well, are you going to talk about that? And it's like, no thanks. <laughs> like, it's right. not everything should be for public consumption. And I think, yeah, it's very tricky, but it's a very tricky balance. And I think there's the expectation with over the last, I don't know, 10 years, maybe there's. It feels like Lena Dunham sort of like opened the floodgates with like, you know, the tell-all memoir and every aspect of your life is up for combing through. And I guess on the flip side of that, there is a lot of good that has come out of those honest personal conversations. There's a lot less shame around specific issues, around the issues that women deal with. And that's a great thing. And I guess we couldn't have got there perhaps without people talking about their own personal experiences. So there is a bit of... I don't know, there's give and take, isn't there? Yeah, for sure. And I don't think anyone is ever fully clear on where their own, you know, boundaries and parameters lie with all of it. You just sort of like have to navigate it day by day. And you have days where you're like, I should be trying so much harder to sell myself. And (laughs) days when you're like, oh, I just want to delete my entire public presence. And so, yeah, I think it's it's something that no one fully has figured out. Well, I was going to ask, you know, why you chose short stories as a format And then also, obviously, in the book, you were telling such a range of women's stories, you know, different ages, different, you know, you've got like a 75 year old lesbian artist in Brooklyn. And then you've got, like I said, the young girl working in the advertising agency and like a whole range of characters in between. Why did you decide to choose short stories as a format? And how did you get into the headspace of all these different types of women? I think short stories, because I've always loved I, one of the guys that I worked with at the Tyneside Cinema, he gave me a Raymond Carver book when I was like 21 or something, a Cathedral. And I really loved that. Like, I feel like they're just so rich and there's just so such a like space to really get into like beautiful details of the life experience, experience without having to like draw it out over a novel. Like I read this right. quote which was just a throwaway thing on Twitter a while ago. And someone had said, if you didn't describe the trees in a novel, it would be like 10,000 words. So I just didn't describe the trees in the, yeah. in the short stories. Like I just, sometimes I think it's better to like respect your reader. Like I kind of set up these characters and I want the readers to like imagine the before and the after. I don't think you have to give everything. And I right. love that about, short stories they are quite respectful of like the reader that you don't have to like spell everything out 
Yeah, also very suitable for a, a generation of people with attention <laughs> <Yeah>. deficit disorder. <laughs> Okay, exactly. all of us. <laughs> exactly. I definitely find myself enjoying short stories more and more now, and I definitely think there is a correlation between my attention span and my ability to enjoy short stories. Yeah, because so you can read it and you'd be like, hey, I have achieved something. I've read something. Absolutely. <laughs> Sorry, I cut you off. Yeah, and then the range, I feel like I've been thinking about these characters for, for, like, for years, and a lot of them... I think, like, you know, you sometimes, like, he overhear pieces of conversation or you just see someone on the street and you're like, oh, you're amazing. You just mm. read read them in a way. And, like, the woman, the 75-year-old artist, I saw this, well, these two women, basically, in this sushi bar in New York a while ago. And I was like, oh, my God. I didn't, I don't know whether they were just friends or whether they were partners, but they just looked incredible. And there was, like, this real deep, like, connection between them and this sort of, like tension as well and so that story kind of came out of, of of just seeing those two women and the rest of them yeah just some of them are inspired by people I've worked with but they're sort of versions you know there was there might be like like one of the mother characters in one of the stories she parks like really close to the garage door my mom does that but the, like that woman isn't my mom right so it's kind of like all mishmash. Of these, yeah, yeah. Just sort of yeah. brought together in various different ways. Yeah, totally. And obviously you've like commented on so many different aspects of womanhood, but one thing that stuck out to me, maybe it's just something that I think about a lot, is again just, you know, the all the ways that women sort of either consciously or not like make themselves palatable whether it's to their their bosses their lovers you know their friends you know, all the things that we repress I loved reading it because I felt like I was in the internal world of all these women and of course you know all the women I know have this very rich internal life and actually a lot of it is not communicated to the world because partly because you feel that the less agreeable aspects of yourself are not allowed to be communicated yeah, exactly. And we're taught that from such a young age that we, everybody is, to be fair, men and women, you know, we have to like fit into these roles in society and we have to be normal and we have to like, you can't sort of express these darker, more like transgressive parts of your personality. But I think it's unhealthy. And actually I wrote it, I wrote the bulk of it in, in the middle of the first lockdown and it was such, like, I, re I really struggled in lockdown. Like, I didn't, you know, I didn't have any money. All the work had gone. My kid was at home. I didn't know what was going to happen. And I think writing this book was, like, I kind of went to really dark places. And, and but in a way, it was really amazing because it was such an outlet. And the story about, there's a story called Bar Italia about a woman who has who's like a serial adulteress yeah that was like one of those stories like I was or my only outlet during that time is to like ride my bike around Wanstead so I was almost like living vicariously through this like really yeah. highly sectionalized woman and it was amazing like it really made us feel like good about you know my myself in that time like I, yeah. it's not that I'm like that's not me and I'm not like having loads of affairs I just want to put that on the record but it was <laughs> like yeah it was a really amazing release because of that thing exactly what you were saying we have to make ourselves so palatable and we have to 
hide ourselves and shrink ourselves in so many situations it was almost like an experiment of like what would life look like if we didn't do that yeah yeah I felt like there was quite a few mentions of like how children haven't yet learned to do that you know like I think there was a line something about like they haven't learned to like repress their self-serving instincts or something you know like we all ultimately have some pretty dark selfish impulses but we which that's not necessarily the worst thing you know for the sake of society but the the other things and obviously specifically with image you know physical image how much women not all women but certainly myself most of my female friends have spent our lives like absolutely engrossed in in you know contemplating how we can look the part Mm thinner, shinier, glossier. It's insane how much of of women's energy that that inner dialogue takes up. And it's hard for me to believe that men do that in the same way. Yeah, yeah, it's it's insane the amount of energy that we put into it. And and I don't know what the answer is because I'm kind of like a bit older now and I feel slightly liberated because I don't look for that gaze, whereas I used to really want it and want to feel validated and would like almost perform for it and like dress in a certain way so even if it was a subconscious thing and now I like I find it really liberating if that guy doesn't look back or if that if I don't feel noticed as much I really Mm. actually like that but I think it is and it's an insane thing you know like holding yourself in a certain way so that your roles don't fall in an unpleasant way or like worrying about stuff and I think it's that thing of like you are as hot and as young as you're ever going to be like right now it's all mm-hmm. you're only going to get older and like your body is is amazing as it is and I think we just never take the time to like really appreciate that and really live in our bodies and just like run around and be like the free human beings that we should be I do think this sort of like oppressive relationship we have with our bodies is such a western thing also because in other parts of the world, I think this relationship with thinness or, I mean, obviously there's lots of parts of the world where it's a much more impressive dynamic, but I agree that it's very hard to feel in your body. Like you write quite a lot about disassociative states Mm. and it made me contemplate like how that's not something I would have thought that I do, but actually I do often feel like I'm sort of just playing a role, whether it's professionally, personally, even in past relationships. Yeah, it's it's a subconscious thing, I think, often, because you fall into those roles. It's a really hard thing to be very conscious in your body, like how you're holding yourself, how you're breathing, what you actually want in that moment, like what is comfortable for you, and to, to like honour that and have the courage and conviction in yourself to be like no this is not right for me or this isn't what I want to be doing right now or what I want to be talking about or the sex I want to be having I mean even that like I read Catherine Angel we interviewed her for the last issue of Riposte and she's a lecturer and she wrote this book called Tomorrow Sex Will Be Good Again Mm, I've heard of that it's really incredible but it's what also shocked us is that how basic like the conversation around desire and consent is because Mm. it's like women understanding what they desire and what they want to happen to their own body you know often we're like so nervous or uncomfortable that we just 
don't tap into what we actually want to do during sex or how we actually want to receive pleasure and it's such a basic thing yeah when you really drilled it down and she talked a lot about sex in long-term relationships and how the inequality in that relationship down to like domestic inequality can then impact how you feel sexually it's layers and layers and layers isn't it I was going to ask if there was anything you have read that sort of you feel has you know I've certainly read things in the last five to ten years where bit by bit that sort of my understanding of my own social conditioning as a woman is chipped away I still feel like I've got a long way to go but is there anything in particular that you've read that you've that had a big impact on you in that regard I think that book was really key and I can't think of anything off the top of my head but to be honest I think just getting older and yeah. like life experience and I just care so much less yeah. And I don't know whether that happens to everybody, but I feel like the things that I used to be really bothered about. I'm Such just, as? I think like how I look. Like I used to get really nervous in meetings about saying the wrong thing or not knowing everything. And now I'm just like, I don't get it. Like, what are you talking about? Or, yeah. you know, like ask the questions that you think are dumb because there's probably other people who don't know what is happening as well. And yeah. Yeah, and I think that thing of, like, my body, like, I've had a kid who's seven now, and I see her, and she's just so joyful, and, like, she's tubby, and she's got a little pot belly, but she just loves running and, like, being in her body and, like, really, like, doubling down on, like, the joy in life and Mm. the fact that we live in the UK, which, I mean, is a shit show, but, like parking that for a minute we are very lucky and privileged and like appreciating that like appreciating the good things about being a woman and I just never used to give time to that I was so Mm. you know focused on the negative and what I wasn't or what I wasn't doing and I just I think I just haven't got time for it yeah obviously you're bringing up a girl what kind of messaging are you hoping to impart to her as she grows up obviously confidence and everything do you feel positive about a young woman today do you feel like they're gonna have a better experience than you did or I did I don't know I've I've got two nieces and one of them's 13 and I feel not great about the teenage experience the teenage Mm. digital experience that looks like a disaster waiting to happen I could sort Mm. of already see it in her she's very nervous she's really bothered about the weirdest things that people will think very self-conscious image wise yeah so, I mean, yeah, I don't know, my kid's seven and I would hope that instilling in her this, like, real core self-confidence or, like, resilience, I think, mm. is really key. But I think just having those honest conversations on a regular basis, trying to explain to her the mechanisms of social media and the world that she lives in, and I don't, I don't know how it's going to play out. Yeah, If I think about my self-consciousness at 13 coupled with Instagram, I just, (laughs) like, Instagram makes me feel insecure in my 30s. So (laughs) 13, like, and then, of course, all these tools for, like, digital manipulation, Facetune, whatnot, and then pair that with, like, this explosion in surgeries and filler and I feel like if I had a teenage daughter now I would I'd want to like throw her phone out the window mm. but obviously you can't do that because it's their lifeline and how they connect with each other above all else it's a really complicated thing and it is again this sort of like weird cognitive dissonance of like on one hand women are 
supposedly encouraged to have a much more expansive idea of beauty and size and all these subjects are sort of like very much pushed in the media but equally we all know that behind closed doors I don't know if it's made that much of a difference and if anything I feel like women's expectations of how they should look have gone more intense Mm, definitely I think that thing you were saying about surgery and fillers like it's just so pervasive now and and the thing that really kills me is that a lot of the conversations are around the physical downsides and what could go wrong and not shaming the individual, which I totally am on board with, not shaming individuals. But there never seems to be like drilling down what it is that we're so terrified of, that we will pump like toxins into our face and like deform ourselves in some instances. Like what is it? We just don't want to be irrelevant. We're scared of like death like what is the bigger thing that we're all trying to desperately kick back behind the door I just yeah and I get it like my face isn't what it used to look like 10 years ago Mm -hmm. but I really don't want to feel bad about myself looking in the mirror every day because Mm -hmm. I haven't had Botox or fillers like that just feels like such a waste of time like we were saying before about that energy we wasted we'd spend on worrying about what we look like like you're going to look at yourself every day and feel bad about yourself because you haven't got the lips or the cheeks or your jawline's a bit different. I don't know. It just seems really, really fucked up. It's fucked up. There's no other way to describe it. It's definitely (laughs) fucked up. But I guess you must get to meet and speak with a lot of really inspiring women through repost. And like that for me has always been a helpful antidote to just put down my phone and remind myself there's actually a lot of people in the world who aren't buying into this bullshit and are just like thinking about different shit (laughs) exactly exactly and I think like I met Paola Antonelli she's the design and architecture curator at MoMA and she's maybe late 50s and she's literally one of the like coolest people I've ever met she's Italian she has this amazing New York life. She's like super inspiring in the way she thinks. She looks her age, but she's very cool with it. Like she wears these amazing clothes and carries herself. And I think it's like the energy that you give off. Like my husband's Nana was 95 when she died. And she had this incredible like light and energy that emanated from her every time you met her, that every time I saw her. And it's that that I want to like try and cultivate more than what my face looks like yeah totally and part of what the issue is there and you addressed this when we were sort of talking over email is that like it's insane because I I know so many amazing older women who I find infinitely more intriguing and inspiring and like stimulating than super pretty girls on Instagram but these women don't get given any public airtime they're basically once you turn sort of 50 or like erased from the cultural narrative essentially with a few exceptions you know you have got some media platforms including your own who are like trying to address that imbalance but I remember being in New York once and spending a day with one of my friend and her husband's then both their mothers were in town both women in their I guess late 60s at least and I was like it was the best day I had Mm. that year because these women were like stylish interesting funny not too self-important and I thought god I'd so much rather hear about their life philosophies than sort of like read about a 20 year old's 18 step skincare regime yeah it's that cutoff point isn't it and it's that short circuit and of, of culture and of ideas that we just like disregard the wisdom and insights of these amazing women and like you say we focus on youth which I get like 
I think there's something in our culture we're so scared of making mistakes and and that we've mess things up that we look to the youth to be like you can fix it you're the one with all the ideas you can you know like come on sort it Mm. out for us when in actual fact like that's so much pressure to put on young people like yes let's listen to their voices and their ideas but let's also not just disregard everything that's come before and everyone that's come before like let's you know like intergenerational ideas and approaches to life in general is where we're gonna find the right solutions I don't know Mm -hmm. I just like uh, this like obsession with youth culture is so tedious yeah obviously youth culture is exciting and and sort of definitely in London particular and I wonder if we're sort of warped by living in a city where I'd say again up there with New York is ruled by youth culture in a way that few places in the world are I mean maybe not economically but certainly culturally young people in London are the focus at all times, which is great. I mean, I, I like being around young people as well, because I say this like I'm a hundred years old, but you know, people who are sort of like 18 or 20, they've got a lot of energy. Definitely. Which is great to siphon off. <laughs> I totally agree. Like I used to teach at Chelsea and that was like the highlight of my week going in because the students were, they were 30, so they were 21. And then I did a thing with DNAD shift project that they do with I think they're 16 to 20 year olds and mm. like say the energy and the ideas and the enthusiasm and the just lust for life is really amazing and and that should definitely be celebrated for sure yeah a balance that's yeah. I think I think that's what like we're saying is that there's just a massive hole <laughs> in sort of media that I mean I guess we are mostly focusing on media in part just because of what we both do but I do think just generally in terms of cultural narratives there is so little space made for older women and it feels like there could be a a lot more what are your sort of plans for Riposte moving forward what kind of stories about women are you trying to tell now and like in the future we've always tried to like not go after really famous people a because we couldn't get them (laughs) 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 because I think there's that thing of like the interest in ideas and the interest in women and the interest in conversations happen sort of like slightly left field. So I want to carry on doing that. I think the next issue is focusing on freedom and liberty. So oh, that's interesting. So really like looking at just in the way that we do with the online editions, like really diving into one theme through loads of different lenses. We're working on the next issue and trying to sort of work out the strategy for moving forward. But it's a really, it's not even competitive. It's just a very hard business model and it's a very hard way to make money. And I, and I actually don't make money now from Repost. Like before the pandemic, I used to, that was on it full, full time and that's how I paid myself. Mm-hmm. And now I do a lot more freelance stuff mm-hmm. because partly because, I used to work with brands like all year round and that yeah. is very intense. Yeah. And now I'd like, I work a lot more on like editorial projects for other people, which I find yeah. is a lot more peaceful. <laughs> yeah. And how was your experience? I mean, obviously you said you wrote during lockdown, so that probably kind of gave you a different perspective, but like, how did you find the experience of writing fiction? I loved it. I really loved it. It's such a weird one because... I didn't really understand the process, but like you write the book basically like 30 times or more because, you know, like you write, you get it down first off and then it's like 
awful, nope. awful, <laughs> like really bad. And then you just have to like keep going back. And I think it's like quite meditative, maybe some sadism to it because it's like sometimes it's not enjoyable and it's very like, is it a confidence thing? I don't know. I don't even know what drives it, but there's like mm. a, a, a drive to like get better and make it better every time because it's often really bad for a really long time. And I didn't understand that at the start. I just thought, hmm. Maybe I'm not very good at this, but nobody's very good at it straight away. Well, yeah, and I guess there's, I mean, I can't remember who said it, but there's that famous quote about sort of like, you know, there being the gap between like where you are and what you know is good. Like you can have an excellent taste level. Like I, I know good writing when I read it. Do I think I could write to that level? Probably not. Like, but that, you know, but I have that discernment. So it means that I end up hating my own work. And it is such a process to like close that gap a little bit. Yeah, definitely. And I work with Abigail Bergstrom. She runs this literary consultancy and she was really amazing. She was really respectful. She went through the whole manuscript and she's like, this, these, this is where it's really good. And this is where it's really bad. And like, she kind of all the way through made notes. And so I responded to her notes and she really directed like, how you write better. She was really amazing. Yeah. Do you have, I hated this question when I had a book myself, but I am, it is always interesting just to follow people's train of thoughts. Do you feel like you would, you would want to write an, a, another book in the near future? <laughs> uh, yeah, I have, um, uh, weirdly, like I started, uh, a, a novel, but I think with this one, it's just like, I'm going to see what happens because it's like right at the beginning and it's in that yeah. really terrible stage and like 20,000 words in where you just like, oh. But I think someone I was talking to was like, just write 500 words a day. And before you know it, you've got, you know, like in a couple of months, you've got however many thousand words and then mm-hmm. you go back and you, I think it's that thing of like doing it for yourself because you really either have a story to tell or you just want to, you love writing and then see where it leads to. I think the thing with like the torture is like, like you were saying before, it has to be because you know what's good and this isn't good. And it's like, and maybe you want it to be something, you want it to go somewhere or, and that's not, I don't know. I didn't find that helpful when I was writing this book. Well, I think it turned out great. Thank <laughs> and, you. I, and I'm sure, it, I mean, it is, it's, it's raw. Like it's really raw. You know, there's very visceral descriptions of sex and eating and, you know, it's like very like, yeah, visceral is the word that I was reading, thinking when I was reading it. I was like, it's very like mm, right in there, but that's refreshing, you know, because of the things that we've, we've said since the start of this conversation about how much the experience of being a woman is so sanitized in so many public expressions yeah and I, I've read Mary Gates girls bad behavior and oh my god a, I just ordered that it's amazing Ooh, and that is way. a collection of short stories and her writing is like it's really descriptive but it's very stark and it's like and the, it's fucked up like some of the the stories are uh, you know like it, hers her writing was really transgressive in the 80s because I read it now and I was like I can't believe she wrote this in like the early 80s. It's really yeah. amazing. Ooh, so I, I like that sort that. of vis- visceral, like it, sometimes uncomfortable experience mm. of reading something. Mm-hmm. Was there and, anything else that you read that shaped the way that you wanted to sort of your, hone your voice in this? There was that Lynn Tillman. Mm-hmm. Weird Fox. That's again, it's, like, it's that. 
it's really funny. It's like this collection of weird fucks that she has. And she's like, I think she was from around the same time as, I think they're probably the same age, like 70s now. So they were like doing mad shit in like the 70s, 80s, maybe the 60s as well. And just having these like relationships in Amsterdam and Berlin and New York Mm. and just really amazing stories. I think even though in many ways things are more equal now, I wonder if the sort of impact of of sort of like surveillance culture has led people to self-police in a way that means that they just are a bit less naughty. Do you know what I mean? I feel like people are really nervous about getting caught out doing naughty Quite, I mean, I put that in air quotes, obviously, you know, I don't give a shit what other people do, but like <laughs> that there's a sort of moralizing and to our generation that maybe Definitely. that reading these stories of people behaving badly is like even the more enticing. Yeah. And it, it's almost like I feel across genders and sexuality at the minute, there's like this mad drive to get married and be in these like, Mm-hmm. big relationships yeah like- I have a lot of thoughts on that as well I was talking about that with a friend the other day about you know with the sort of um this interesting trendification of pregnancy right now mm. which I'm not opposed to and I think it's important you know it's insane how little we see of of women's pregnant bodies considering we all were born of a pregnant woman's body but I again it's these it's there's so many things that emerge in our in our sort of cultural moment that I just can't help but feel like underwritten by capitalism yeah, <laughs> and selling something, even yeah. if we can't quite figure out what we're selling. And I feel like there's a lot of sort of selling of the family unit. And again, it's just like a new way to sell a woman's body. And maybe that's a cynical take, but I can't help but feel like when you're like having heavily pregnant women suddenly out of nowhere after mm. <laughs> however many thousands of years of women giving birth, suddenly being glorified that there's there's something a little bit off at play yeah I wonder if it's in in response to the uncertainty of like the pandemic and the Trump era and the like I don't know everyone is like honing in on this security of this like like you say this family unit but I don't know I like want to read about people cheating on their husbands and like doing weird stuff yeah, yeah, yeah. Like everyone's supposed to be in a super healthy, communicative relationship with like, you know, doing great parenting and yeah. ethical work. And <laughs> it's just fucking boring. And it's, it just doesn't feel real. Like we're flawed. Human beings are like flawed pe- flawed beings. And it's just not real. It's not realistic. It's like that other sort of aiming for perfection. And then shaming people I don't know it's yeah it's a lot it's a lot it's a lot and it's a lot of pressure on women so again I think it's really great that you've written this book of imperfect women and I don't say that obviously critically I say it you know like real women none of us are perfect so it's just nice to like read a narrative that doesn't subtly reinforce the idea that you should be striving for that thank you Thank you. Well, it's been lovely to talk to you. It's been really nice. Thank you for having me. The book comes out in it's June, isn't it? Yes, 23rd of June. June 23rd. Fantastic. So good luck with all your relentless press endeavours and divulging of personal <laughs> secrets. I know. <laughs> you probably read a like, dead dad story somewhere, somewhere in the next five weeks. You'll be like, oh, there she is. No judgment from me. <laughs> Thank you.